Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Achtung, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and with uh, James Holland, of course. James, how are you? You're at home, I'm at home. It's a rare confluence. Last week you were in Cornwall, I was in Kiel. Uh, the, but the planets have aligned to put us actually at home. For yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, no, so that's very good. So how, how's the tour going? All good? It's going very well. It's going very well, but um, uh, where, God, where was I the other night? Uh, Guildford. What happened in Guildford? I can't remember. You see, this is the I've thing. I've seen some pics. Start, I've seen some pics. They're starting to merge and blur, James. Is the okay. But, but also, it's anyway. not just tour you've got. You've also got your TV series that you were filming over the summer. That started. Yes. Yes. Uh, that launched. And we had a very interesting launch the other night um, uh, where we did a thing for the Royal Television Society, um, which is, isn't as grand as it sounds. You can join. Right. <laughs> it's 80 quid. Right. Or 60 quid. Or so. Anyway. And Katya came down to talk. Um uh, uh, we, so we talked about um, 
you know, her experience of living in a country that, um, uh, well, her experience of living in two countries that haven't got over the Second World War. So first of all, Germany, <laughs> and then um, and then the United Kingdom. I've never so she was very about it like that. She she was well, you know, uh, and with different different ends of the stick, so to speak. So we never got over winning it. They never got over um, uh, starting and losing it. I suppose. Anyway, the, the anyway, but that's, that's good, not was what it? we're here. To, that was yes, it was fascinating actually. Yeah, and um, the combination of Katya and Henning Vane, um, uh, the imagine. German comedy ambassador, is something I I think I think they they might end up doing something on her podcast together, which I think would be really funny because Henning is Henning's extremely funny, and I was saying to saying to is he funny because he's German because it's because of his because he's a German fish out of water, or is he just really peculiar? And she said. Oh, I think he's really peculiar. So <laughs> well, I've got to say, Catcher is very much in my good books at the moment. Not that she yeah. never was in my good books, but she's given me a very nice review. Yes, no, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, anyway. we're not here to talk about um, no, my not. exploits or your book, your excellent book reviews, of which are multiple. We're here to do something else quite different, aren't we? Yeah, we are. Yeah, we've got an exciting yeah. guest today. We've got John Conker. Yeah. Hello. Hello, John. <laughs> Delighted to be here. It's, you know, I think the 30-year-old kid sitting in the library devouring Jack Tanner books is... Very, very excited oh, right now. John, you're saying all the right things. <laughs> yeah, you're saying you know. all the right things. I know. You know, I mean, I'm still thinking about the end of year nine when the library, the head library came up to him and went, we're getting rid of all these Jack Tanner books, do you want them? And I just chucked them in a bag and walked away very quickly before he changed his mind. <laughs> so they're on a, a bookshelf at home along with, you know, half a dozen other James Holland books that my dad goes through. So. Well, that's Brilliant. lovely and to you, know. And you, you came to Warfest, didn't you, with your, with your dad? I came, yes, with um, Conquer the Elder. Um, we had a smashing time. Thoroughly enjoyed it all. He thoroughly enjoyed the beer. Um, he sort of sat on that hangover for a good four or five days. <laughs> <laughs> well, I potted back up to Edinburgh to start my studies, but... Yeah, so, we had a fabulous so, time. Well, I'm, I'm thrilled to hear it. And so you are currently an undergraduate at Edinburgh University, and you're doing your dissertation at the moment, aren't you, on <laughs> black servicemen and from Trinidad. Is that right? Yeah, I'm doing my dissertation on the... The dissertation is on the development of labour policy just before the Second World War in Trinidad. But as part of that, I've spent a lot of time exploring politics and the relationship between Trinidad and Great Britain during... just before the Second World War. And because of that, and because I'm a warner and I just explore these things, I just went down this rabbit hole, I mean, of exploring what these people's lives were like during the Second World War. And it sort of connects with long-standing family connection, so to speak, because about eight years ago, my mother, who was a musician, was asked to play at a memorial service for Justice Ulrich Cross in London. And my mum knew that he was a big diplomat and lawyer because he'd been High Commissioner for Trinidad. And she turns up to this memorial service in central London and the top brass of the RAF is there. Right. And she's like, hang on a second, what's, what's going on here? And she asked her, and it turns up that the friend of hers who asked her to play was this man's nephew, and that he, Ulrich Cross, was the highest decorated West Indian of the Second World War, having come out with the rank of squadron leader with the DSO and DFC, having done 80 or more missions as a pathfinder in the ski My God. And, you know, I came back, and my mum told me this, and 13, 14-year-old me went, wow. Yeah. And it's sort of since then I've sort of picked up stories and put together narratives and it's just this sort of you know if anybody's ever met me at some point I'll start talking about this stuff because it's brilliant and there's so much to them and I think it's an important part of the sort of Duke story yes. 
you know, I've been told to say that term a lot because it's a good term. <laughs> well, it is, it's, that, very good, it's a very the Second good Second World War. It is a good acronym. Very wonderful. I think people who came up with that should get some get some special prizes. But <laughs> um, sort of understand not just how the British war went to the world, but how the world came into the British yeah. war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, which, which I mean, I, I think is an, inter- is an interesting... It's an interesting moment at the moment because, after all, concepts of uh, uh, discussion of imperial history is very much central, isn't it? But uh, uh, um, in historical debate at the moment, but you can't talk about the Second World War without talking about empire. You know that the Second World War has been in the last last two three decades has been very much reimagined or re-realised as as an imperial conflict on the British side, not standing alone, not being alone, all this sort of thing. And that's happening at the same time as the as imperial history is very much in the forefront of people's imaginations as a as a as a bad thing, if 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 you like. It's sort so of you have to sit in this paradigm of that you have this. I mean, the way the sort of music is, you have all these servicemen who come from the empire to Britain to fight for king and country, and they're very forward about they're fighting for the motherland, they're fighting for King George. Go home. Immediately set up political parties and organise for independence. <laughs> yes. That's the... And, you know, that's what they all do. That's part of that paradigm of that the Second World War is this imperial conflict. But the empire that goes into it is not the empire that leaves it. And part of that is because of the war experience of these men and the war experience of the Caribbean and West Africa that it's not... They don't have the same experience they did in the First World War. And that's really important, you know. It's one thing to be a political uh, to be a political radical in the West Indies in 1939. It's another thing in the 50s when you're coming back and you've got war service medals on your chest and the man opposite you does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's really important. And I think there's been a lot of great work with the centenary about talking about people like Walter Tull, who is basically, you know, a household name at this point, which is fantastic. Lots of great work done by people like Ola Sugar and Stephen Bourne and others. But I think it's sort of important to place these things as part of Second World War history and not black history, so to speak. Yes. Right. You know, an integrated narrative. Yes, 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 yes. Rather than kind of sort of separating it out. Um, but, but mm. you know, it's Black History Month at the moment. And, um, you know, I think it's interesting to think about the huge contribution by black servicemen and women, indeed, um, in the Second World War mm. to the British war effort. Um, I'd be quite interested to know, you know, what, what, how many black servicemen are there who are actually living in Britain at the time, uh, and is, are they all, co- or are they almost entirely all coming from around the Duke? It's a difficult Can't question it. because we know there's ethnic, the ethnic sort of, uh, what's the word? Censuses, like, as we understand today, aren't don't begin till the post-war period, but there's a stable ethnic black population of around. <clears throat> 20 or 30,000 between the end of the First World War and beginning of the Second World War. And they're concentrated in London, Cardiff, Liverpool, South Shields. Yeah. So ports, Glasgow, Port towns and industrial areas. Yeah, as they had been more or less since the mid-18th century in smaller or larger numbers. And what this is, But there is a significant population within the UK that do enlist, and they enlist tend to be more domestically... But it is a small percentage compared to the huge amount that come from the West Indies or from West Africa. What is interesting about them is they are sort of facing the brunt of dealing with the sort of government's colour bar and and the army's attempts to sort of 
run their social war the way they ran the First World War. Yeah. Because we have break, you have the breakthrough case in the First World War, like Walter Tull. But after the war, the army go, First World War, the army goes, we're not doing that again. We're going to keep the rule that says it's only of pure European descent. And this is to such a hard level that in October 1938, there's a mixed race man who travel, goes to America, gets his pilot's license, pays for his journey back to the UK, and the RAF refuses to let him join as an officer because he's not of Europe, pure European descent. And this is an issue at the beginning of the war, because at the beginning of the war, there are, there's a man called Charles Arundel Moody, nicknamed Joe Moody, tries to join up at Whitehall as an officer. And he's mixed race. He's the son of um, Harold Moody, who is a lawyer, doctor, and head and of the coloured people. Which is sort of, he went to Alex. Yeah. You know, he, is, he and all his siblings went to um, South London private schools. You know, Dr. Moody is middle-class stock of very English character, but he's from Jamaica. Yeah. And he's black, yeah. and his sons are black, and the what, and the army says you can't join because you're not of your pure European so, so, descent. So, so in effect, he's done the integrating that's sort of demanded of him by, but by, by colonial uh, uh, um, uh, culture, hasn't he? The, the, his father, hasn't he? If you you know, he's, he's well, yeah. Moody is the consum. He's he is a professional, yeah. and he's English educated, yeah. but he's still. A radical, you know, his people have compared him to being a British Martin Luther right, King, right. which is unfair to Moody and Martin Luther <laughs> King in their own ways. They're both very different people, but very dedicated yeah. people. There's some great work done on Moody, but you know, he's jumped through the hoops of colonial social. Yeah, that's, I think that's what say. I meant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so, and the army still so, says, to be... John, sorry to interrupt, but 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 can we just go back to this sort of you know having to be from pure European descent? How far does that go back? Is that is that is that a pre-First World War? Or, it's a complicated or, or... one. In pre-First World War, it goes back probably about as far as Cardwell. Right. And it's one of these regulations that exists partly to keep Indian officers out of the British regular army and keep them separated. But as we see through both the First and Second World War and both before then, a lot of the time, if you were a good recruit or a good officer recruit, the recruiting officer would look you up and write white. He'd just look you up and down and say you're white. Right. So there's two old Alanians called George, uh, George Bemond and Arthur Bemond, who are mixed race, their mother is Jamaican, are written in the army records as white. Well, they're not. And you look at photographs of them from the first of all, they're clearly not. You know, they look exactly like I do, but... Right. They're... So it's this, it's a very British army rule in the sense that it's a strict rule, but if we like the look of you, we're so not going to So say you're, say you're, you know, you're, you're living in, you're, you're a, a, a black Brit and you're living in, you know, Teesside... Tyneside and you want to join the Durham Light Infantry can you? If you're joining as an enlisted man uh, yes go ahead there are three there are records at least of one regular being black regular being captured at Dunkirk and spending three five years in a pre-OW camp so there were definitely enlisted men there's probably there's no and do problem we, and do we know and that's do we been know a anything about how they would you know were they were they treated differently because they were black or were they just sort of one of the guys? It depends. I mean, if you read a lot of accounts, the accounts tend to suggest that in cases of promotion, there was a distinct understanding of casual racism. There's an account Stephen Bourne covers where a leading aircraftman and a corporal, black corporal being black, go up for officer training. The leading aircraftman goes through, the corporal doesn't. And the black corporal trained the leading aircraftman for the officer training. So there's obviously something going on there. But 
in social basis, you're one of the lads. And one of the examples of this is my um, father was in Hart- at the Hartenstein Hotel last week. He sent me a photograph of a para called Darkie Roberts, who, after First Airborne was evacuated, was in an American mess, and the Americans refused to serve him. Whole platoon stands up and walks out. So socially, you're one of the lads. You're one of you are a soldier of King George. As far as most people are aware, as an individual, you are equal. You know, but in the sense that, of course, casual racism, where if there's there are myriad of circumstances where you could be made separate, they will be taken, and that obviously fits in with factors of sexual patriotism, which of course fit in with a lot of other allies, whether they're um, whether they're you know Poles or Free French or American that. If your sexual patriotism factors a lot into relations, but in terms of the unit, the most black servicemen are well respected and well trusted, and a lot of them are considered lucky, especially in the RAF, because they're exceptionally brave and they survive a lot. That's interesting, so, isn't it? So that, their survival Smite, rates are higher. Yeah. they high. Well, the individual survival rates are higher, but. The group survival rates are not. Of 250 Trinidadians, 50 are killed. And um, of the Errol Barrow, who was first Prime Minister of Barbados, comes across with a group of 12 in November 1940, six are killed. So the individual themselves, those who survive, are exceptionally brave and push themselves, but as groups, the survival rates are much lower. So, you know, or at Cross did 80 missions, but Pete, the Trinidadian cadre of volunteers <clears throat> suffered 20% casualties. So what, what's, what's Cross's path to the, to the Royal Air Force then? I mean, is there a typical path for, for people wanting to, wanting to, to serve in Britain? Or, or do they all take separate and disparate routes? It... It depends. Once post for the big sort of tipping point, as you know, we know on this podcast is Dunkirk. It's a strategic earthquake, but it is a tipping point in recruitment, which is that after that point, it becomes clear the war is going to be big, and we're going to have to draw on all the resources. And part of that is the manpower reserves of the empire. So before that point, if you were a West Indian recruit and you went, "I'd like to join the Royal Air Force," it was great figure out how to get to London. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. So Billy Strachan, who was best known post-war as a communist, had to make his own way to London. And he did so by selling his prized possessions, which were a bicycle and a saxophone. <laughs> Jumped on a boat and came to London, walked to the air ministry and was thrown out by the guards who told him that his thoughts should go back where they came from. And it was ridiculous that he should join the Air Force. And eventually he was rescued by a young officer who told him, listen, young man, I'm educated. And I know you've come a very long way for Jamaica because that's in West Africa. <laughs> and uh, Strachan just shut his mouth and went, yes, sir. Of course, sir. I'd like to join the RAF. And by the end of the day, he was in uniform. That's amazing. God, and what was his story then? So Strachan had to, to make his own way. Strachan, he does 45 missions, 30 as a radio operator and 15 as a pilot in Wellington. Really? So he switched? He was considered... He switched. Yeah, he switched. And that was uncommon because it was well known that white... Considered that white crews didn't want black pilots. And 
that was just a considered rule by a lot of black faction that they, that they knew that white pilot, white crews weren't comfortable black pilots. They were perfectly comfortable with black COs, you know, across Johnny Smythe's traction were all COs of ships and, you know, or across the squadron, but pilots seems to have been a touchy issue. But Strachan himself, you know, he changed. He was, he was considered exceedingly lucky. There was an occasion where when stationed near Hull, he went to a dentist in underground surgery, comes back up after the surgery, everything above ground has been bombed to rubble. <laughs> That's the kind of lucky oh, God, That's amazing. But I mean, that oh, it God. is, I, you know, it, it, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, that Auric Cross does end up being a squadron commander? I mean, he does 80 missions, and he's asked, after 30 missions, he's asked, do you want to switch out? And he goes, I'm fine. After 50 missions, he's asked again, do you want to switch out? And he says, I'll keep going. I mean, it's incredible. And he's running missions right up till the end of the war. I mean, that's, in, that's an incredible yeah, achievement, and, isn't it? And he sort of keeps going, because after the war, he's immediately part of the RAF liaison committee to deal, to basically, the question of what do we do with all of this, these African and West Indian servicemen. And he's part of the group that are sent in 48 to Jamaica to assess whether Windrush is in sail. And he's one of the guys who said yes. Wow, God. Because, because lots of Windrush, or, or, or a share of Windrush people were, were um, veterans anyway, weren't they? So you... That's why, they got, that's why they, the uh, British government knew they had mechanical skills, because they were still on the books as being RAF mechanics, army mechanics, navy mechanics. They knew they had the skills that they needed to rebuild Britain. And there was no work in Jamaica in 1945, whereas there was in England. And these guys were itching to go back. Gosh, because they'd enjoyed that. Because they'd enjoyed their time in the war, and they had a sense of purpose, and it was work was interesting, and all those kind of things. The same things for a lot of people who were in the war, wasn't it? I think, yeah. One of the things is that these people are exactly the same as as anyone else. British, <laughs> anyone else. exactly. Yeah. The whole point. I mean, <laughs> this is the, the best one, being that you know. Ulrich Cross is exactly like any pilot you'd read because at 14 years old, he's signing his textbooks, um, Flying Officer Ulrich Cross, DFC, <laughs> RAF. <laughs> and his friends are like, you're mad, Ulrich. You're never going to be in the RAF. And he does it. Oh, that, is, that is... That is... Inc- but it's... Incredible. It's... They have a lot of barriers to get to because as much as the British government breaks the colour on October 39 and the Foreign Office writes this memo saying we will be issuing emergency commissions for the duration, which everybody knows means we're issuing commissions and we're never going to undo them because once you open that box, it's open. There's still the sense in which the government is still trying to keep the genie in the bottle because it, especially in the 1930s, there's this long-standing awareness of growing colonial nationalism, which sort of breaks out into the open post-Abyssinia because across most of British and French colonial states, the fall of Ethiopia is considered this great betrayal moment by the European powers. Because, you know, it's the last free black country and they dobbed it into the Italians. And the West Indies, especially, is incredibly politically aware. You know, there are mass charity drives for Haile Selassie. There are anti-Italian riots in Trinidad where an Italian doctor's office is attacked and Catholic church is very... Violent and the music of the time is incredibly political. You know, they're writing songs about Mussolini, Hitler, Chamberlain. Well, even, you know, even, the, even, the hit song even of the Bob is still writing about Abyssinia, isn't he? Yeah, it's well, the sort of place of Abyssinia is that in there's an incident in 1936 around there with the eighth coronation where a crowd gathers to sing God Save the King, 
And someone notes it's entirely unclear whether they're singing to King Edward or Halle Selassie, and he's not going to ask. Ah, amazing. So, so that 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 so that's a, 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 an interwar sense of of of, of black solidarity, essentially. Um, with the, the sort of because after all, I think a lot of a lot of uh, um, conception of this might be that this is all stuff that happens post the Second World War. This these kind of international movements, this kind of international solidarity. But in fact, I suppose if you if you fascism, which is so explicitly racist in its intent, going on. I mean, uh, uh, it, the, the fact that the fact that pe- people in Britain aren't paying attention to the racist content in fascism um, uh, is, I think, is 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 well known. Um, but it doesn't mean that no one else is, uh, if you see what I mean. Ulrich Cross read Mein Kampf in 1938 at school. They all read it and they all knew exactly what it meant. Oh my God. They, you know, they all, Johnny Smyth, who was from Sierra Leone, said, is quoted as saying, I read Mein Kampf and I knew that Hitler wanted to use black men's hearts to make, to line the soles of his shoes. They'd all knew what Hitler meant oh for them. Oh my God. So, and as much as... Yeah, sorry, sorry. So, so do you think, I mean, yes, it's the motherland and King George and all the rest of it, but do you think it, 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 at its heart, it, the motivation is, is something much more sort of um, deep-rooted in that the Nazism and fascism are evils that have to be overcome? Yes, I absolutely. I think in the 30s, there's a long-standing connection in early Pan-African thought between fascism and imperialism. Yeah. You know, there are some, such as George Padmore, who's also Trinidadian, the communist, who breaks from, for example, he breaks with the USSR because the USSR decides that fascism is more important than imperialism. Because to him, to Padmore, they're the same, and to many, they're the same. Yeah. But by sort of 1937-38, it's clear to a lot of radicals in Trinidad that one is the greatest threat. And that doesn't stop a lot of outrage. I mean, when the war breaks out, there's a paper, go, a, mem- a sort of radical article goes around basically saying, we're not going to fight another white man's war. Yeah. And that's the attitude of the radicals. But that attitude, while very strong in 39, nearly 40, drops off after the fall of France. Because it becomes clear that this is a war that the Germans might bring to our shores. And I think there is an intense awareness of what a German victory will look like to a black population. You know, there's an incident in 41, 42, where a U-boat torpedoes a merchant ship in Barbados Harbour. And the population panics and thinks the Germans are coming. And the the white, rich population flee for the hills. The black population of Barbados arm themselves to fight the Germans off because they know what it will mean if they win. And of course, it's nothing happens, you know, it's just a U-boat having its happy time. But that's the attitude. That if, the Ger- if the Germans win, we're all dead. We just need to take a quick break. We'll be back in a second. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. James and I are talking to James Conker. God, the, 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 parallel, the parallels with India and Japan are really, really stark there, aren't they? Because we, we, we've been... I mean, you know, we've always, Absolutely. Carl and I have been reading Rob Lyman's new book. And, you know, he's pointing out that... Mm. That... that India are not, you know, that they're, they're all volunteering, not because they've been coerced by the British, but because they know that if they don't, they'll be faced with the Japanese who are, will be considerably worse than the British Raj. Well, and, that, and that's Chiang Kai-shek's uh, pitch to, to Gandhi, mm. isn't it? Essentially, that, that, Gandhi, yeah. that, that, that and 
and to to know and every uh, and everybody in Indi- Indian politics saying, I know you don't like the British, but trust me, this is a the, the, the Japanese are worse. And if you want to get rid of the British, you're going to have to deal with the Japanese first. So in America, amongst the African-American community, the dub, there's the double victory campaign, which is sort of victory at home and victory against Nazism. And part of that rationale is this rationale of if we're going to beat Jim Crow, we have to beat Hitler because Hitler will do worse. And more importantly, if we put our all into beating Hitler, they'll know we are just the same as them, that segregation is, is baloney to use Yankee talk. Yeah. And that's part of the rationale very much that you are proving yourself as individuals and as a people by standing side to side and toe to toe in places of extraordinary danger. So, so you don't have this thing because, after all, what what happens in uh, you know deep left politics in Britain is that, that they all get their knickers in a twist when the Nazi Soviet pact happens. Do do you you you, you don't have that happening because people realise fascism is the, the the true threat or the rather than rather because you do get people who are part of the Comintern, don't they? Who who go, oh well, you know. Uh, now that now that uh, the Soviet Union and the Nazi state are allies, well, we we've, we've got to stay out of this. You don't really get that amongst sort of black round communities, mainly because they're not big fans of the Soviet Union to start with. Right, you know, the okay. big sort of top tier left wing black radical CLR James, who's the, you know the closest you get, is a Trotskyite. Yeah, yeah. So right, he's not okay, exactly yeah. going to be throwing himself in with Uncle Joe. Right, but oh, okay. what anti-war radicalism there is, is more, you know, let the white people fight. You know, we're not going to get involved. It's their fight. We're not going to sell our blood the same way our fathers did in 1418. There's long-standing memories of things like the Trieste mutiny, when the West India Regiment at the end of the First World War mutinied because it's not been sent home, and 10 people are hung. Right. So there's this long-standing memory of betrayal there, and... Are the memories of like the, the 1919 race riots in Cardiff, which are horrible, that like this idea that perhaps we stay out of this war. But once the war expands and it becomes clear that it's not That's going to be another Western Front contained to Europe and that the, the Nazi threat is serious, it becomes clear to a lot of people that this is something that needs to be stopped. I mean, that, it, that's, I mean it's interesting, isn't it? Because that has... That has a lot in common, actually, with what what happens in the British state, because the British state isn't really taking things particularly seriously uh, up until um, uh, the the fall of France, is it? That there's a there's a kind of like, well, we'll we'll sweat this one out attitude, and the, certainly the Chamberlain government is not particularly proactive in its efforts to to take the war to Germany. Um, you know, the famously not wanting to do, do any strategic bombing for fear of the damage to private property, which I think is the most, the most sort of n- notorious example. Of uh, of how unserious they are, so that's quite interesting that that that, that fits that same sort of the pe- the penny drops in the summer of nineteen forty for a lot of people. It's a sort of interesting fact that in the First World War there is an understanding quite early on that we're going to draw from the West Indies in some ways or another. You know, the West yeah. India Regiment is a pre-war regular unit, yeah. and parts of it are drawn on in Labour Corps in both Europe and the Mesopotamia. And the Second yeah. World War is this sort of attitude of we don't want to do that and that's perhaps a reflection on colonial nationalism and the unrest across the West Indies in the mid in the late 30s but once the penny drops is we are going to use every single resource that we have yeah and that of course extends to West Africa and East Africa where you know by the end of the war Kenya regiment has 11 battalions 
including wow. an armoured car battalion, artillery, anti-aircraft, engineers. Because they're just, we're going to draw on every single resource we have. And the West African quest is complicated, because you can say really for certain that everyone from the West needs a volunteer. Whereas in West Africa, there's been a lot more reporting these days on the fact that a lot of volunteers was more in a sense of in the middle of the night, a van showed up, pulled all the young men from the village in the back, and a sergeant went, congratulations, you've just joined the British Army. Which Christ. was really, you know, it's very traumatising. And there's this sort of still a sort of social trauma that in parts of West Africa, and especially in Kenya, because the lines were a lot more blurred in that kind of clone in that newer sort of colonial existence than in the West Indies, where you know there's an established colonial society for two hundred years at that point. But you can say for certain that everyone in the West Indies was a volunteer. And, you know, a lot of them who fought very hard for the right to go to Britain to fight. But you absolutely can't say that in from the West African divisions. No, you really can't. There's been a few cases of people trying to suing the British government for damages because. You know, war injuries and war wounds and, you know, yeah. pensions that were never paid because these people just weren't officially considered part of the army. Well, it's absolutely the case that the British Empire was different for different people in different parts of the world. I mean, mm. you know, the, the experience of India was not the same as those in Nigeria, for example. I mean, you know, there's not one rule or, or one experience that fits all by any stretch of the It's a multilateral empire for multilateral means and... Part of that reflects in the West Indies this is an interesting place where by the 1930s it is in this place where people view it as heading in a dominion-y direction. But it's also the sense in which people are still very nervous about black self-government. You know, there's this idea that perhaps we'll be self-governing and this question of can we let it be governed by the white ruling classes, but that's increasingly less likely. But you know, certain colonies. Trinidad doesn't have its own colonial assembly until after the First World War. Which feels ridiculous when, you know, this is meant to be democracy. Trinidad is governed by a governor till after the First World War. And then even then it has a franchise of under 10%. Crikey. And despite this, and despite the fact that the huge black population is in a set completely disenfranchised, they all go in for it in the war. You know, the huge amounts of money are donated from both businessmen and white and the white aristocracy down to the lowest farmer to, you know, Spitfire funds. That's why Jamaica Squadron is called Jamaica Squadron, not because of the of Jamaicans. I mean, the thing always means about Jamaica Squadron is the only black member of the Jamaica Squadron was Ulrich Cross, and he was from Trinidad. <laughs> but that it was paid for by the people of Jamaica. They paid for their planes. So, so the, the the home front is is sort of fully engaged with with the war effort. This isn't a question. This isn't a question of sort of people deciding they want to go and fight. The the, the home front society is engaged with the war effort. There's a blackout. Sort of comp- yeah, yeah. There's a blackout. There are ARP wardens. Everybody learns to recognise German aircraft and German ships. Um, and this is changed- across the Caribbean. Yeah, it's across the Caribbean, and especially in the the places like Trinidad, which of course hand over to America and destroys the bases. You know, yeah. that's a whole new effort of the war. Is suddenly there were these GIs amongst them, and that completely changes Caribbean culture. And that's everything from music to you know rum and coke, macaroni yeah. pie. That's the that's the GIs. Yeah, and the sort of you know the it affects things in a way. The last carnival in Trinidad is summer forty one because it's cancelled because the lights are attracting the U boats. And the last at the lo- the closing song of that carnival is a song called Adolf Hitler by Destroyer, 
which talks about sending Hitler to St. Helena. <laughs> it's a great one if you go if the listen, if you go on YouTube if you go on YouTube you can find it Adolf it's on Spotify as well Adolf Hitler Destroyer it's an excellent song and it's sort of it's wow, great because it's summer 41 it's basically you know you think you can beat us you, you beat the Dutch or the Belgians or the French but remember that we are the British Empire and we got the Yankees too so you won't get us this time that That's is incredible fantastic. I've never heard that have you ever heard that Al? No, I've not. I've not heard of it at all. I thoroughly that, recommend that... looking it up because the Calypso, Calypso was birthed in this period from the oil industry in Trinidad. That's where the steel pan drum comes from. And it's this incredibly political form of music. You know, it's singing about strikes and wages and government crisis, but it's also singing about Hitler. And it's, you know, run your run, Hitler. We're going to get you. you your game is up. That's just amazing. I've just, it's, it, there it is on Spotify. Philip Murray, Adolf Hitler Destroyer. Adolf Hitler the Destroyer. Adolf, Adolf Hitler, Hitler destroyer. by Destroyer. Because the destroyer, Calypso yeah. artist was called Destroyer. Yeah. It's a fantastic That's, incre- that's incredible. Oh, but, well, well, I think as that's we, our new team as soon as, I've wished, as soon as we've uh, stopped speaking, I will be listening to that. It's a fabulous yeah, too. But that's, even, We might have know, to use it as it. our intro tomorrow. We can play out with it. We'll play out with it. That's what we'll do at the end of this podcast. Harry, who's uh, organising this, will play out with that, I think. Excellent. <laughs> That's absolutely amazing. But, but as you say, I mean, then, then the Americans arrive, and, and that, so, so there's a second break with British influence, isn't there, that the Second World War brings, which is that Trinidad becomes, a, you know, a, 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 an American-influenced place in a way it never has been before, right? And it's sort of, you have the sort of dual ends of American influence. You have the Americans in... The West Indies would destroy the base, and you also have, you know, the American invasion in Britain. You have the GIs, and the interactions between the GIs and Black Service in Britain, which are complicated. And that sort of brings up lots of questions of what race means to the British public yeah. and to the British government. But in Trinidad, that is this turning point. Arguably, that is one of the points where West Indian culture and Caribbean culture begins to align itself a lot more with the Americas. Simply because yeah. you have, for five years, GIs are everywhere, the Americans are everywhere, they're building bases, they're building airfields, they're interacting with the populace. They crash the local economy, as Americans tend to do when they go everywhere. <laughs> but it completely recharacterizes. And, and they... geographically, geographically, it, it just, it is closer, isn't it? I mean, there's no yeah. I mean, politically, there's a lot of influence cause from there beforehand because of people like Marcus Garvey, who essentially is one of the founding fathers of Pan-Africanism in a sense, even if he was a bit nuts. But that sort of influence is what drives early Pan-Africanism, and that is sort of how you get to, you know, cross-Atlantic unity and reaction to Abyssinia, is this Garveyite idea of a a worldwide African society. Yeah. Yeah. And it's sort of... But those differences are still reflected when you get to interactors in Britain, because... Two West Indians in Britain, those who have come from Trinidad and Jamaica, those who were born there, they're British. You know, they did not yeah. see... A lot of them talk about not understanding they are black until a young boy runs up into the street and goes, Mummy, there's a black man. And that is a place of racial understanding that I think would be quite strange to us in the 21st century where we, you know, we live in a multipolar global world where these things are, you know, sadly very important to a lot of people. But... That is a place to these servicemen. They were British. 
And to Africa, to American GIs, especially those from the southern states, they were other. They were yeah. not to be treated with respect. But what is interesting is that that was not a view shared by other white British servicemen and by white British civilians. You know, there's, um, there's a case in 1943 when an American GI walks into a British airbase sees a Jamaican serviceman, slaps him across the face and tells him to leave. Everyone in the canteen stands up and gets ready to beat, to fight this man. Somebody says, send for the, the GIs, the, um, the white caps, the American military police. Yeah. And the Americans are trying to pass off and saying, it'll be fine if this man leaves. A schoolmistress who's man in the canteen comes out from behind her table, slaps the American across the face and says, you're the only man who's leaving. That's the attitude wow. of the British public and the British servicemen to white GI racism generally is that we're not going to tolerate it in our spaces. And this is, you know, there's, it's the, one of the tightropes that the British government is walking when, with the Americans is this question of the colour bar because the Foreign Office is determined, it writes several memos saying we're not going to have an active colour bar, that it's not something we do as British. You know, we're going to maintain... They're pretty open about maintaining internal, unofficial restrictions based on race. Yeah. But they are, you know, and we all know about, you know, no blacks, no dogs, no Irish. But that, the idea of, you know, putting official policies in place is not something the British government is very keen on. You do see it in places of high American concentration, like North Norfolk, where, you know, Americans are segregated from the white British population just because it's that violent and in other places you'll see people um commercial businesses segregating themselves just to avoid violence from the americans but as a general rule british public are opposed to it and the sort of level we're talking about is that there was a village in the western supermare where the vicar's wife wrote a memo to all the ladies of the village saying if a colored gi walks into your shop you should tell them you should try and get them out as quickly as possible if you see one on the street, you should cross from him. If you sit in the cinema, you should move. And, you know, awful things like that. And the women of the village basically turned around to her and went, how dare you? You know, they write letters to national papers saying, that's some British behaviour. These men are our allies. We should welcome them here. And that's the sort of attitude of the British public. Gosh, to it's, those like, kinds it's, of... it's confused and confusing, though, isn't it? Because... Yeah. But, but, uh, uh, and, and it's always... It's that thing of, you know... Racism is bad fuel, isn't it? Whatever motor you put it into, the, the, it, it, it causes problems, doesn't it? And, and the, 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 this, that the, there are British colour bars and the, the sort of British racism is, I don't know, is, it, is, is the right word softer? Is, it, it, softer it, would be, yeah. It's a soft power motor. There's no, you're never going to see a whites only sign in Britain, but you will definitely see, I'm sorry, you can't come in here today or... I don't think we yeah. can serve you right now. Yeah, yeah, we're you know, There's full. the famous Sorry. story yeah. of Louis yeah. Constantine, you know, James, one of the famous, yeah, one of the yeah, famous yeah. Well, critics of the 1930s. In 1943, it's a century. Constantine. Yeah, refused. He spends the war doing war, um, supporting black labourers. There's a huge amount of West Indian and African labourers who are brought in to fill positions that have been locked for war work. So in Scotland, you have... British Honduran foresters, and you have yes. miners from West Africa in Link Lancashire, Lincolnshire, and he, that's what he does during the war. And he does these, you know, these celebrity missions because, as well as being so, where is Louis Constantine? Does he stay in the West Indies or is he over in the? No, UK? he's in Britain. He's in Britain from 1938 mm. for the duration. Cause yeah, because he plays in the Victory Test. In the, yeah, in, 
in the in the the last of the of, not the victory test the last sort of showpiece test match in mm-hmm. inverted commas of um of the summer of 1945 as a kind of, sort of England versus the rest of the world and he captains the rest of the world side I think yeah but during the war he is his, not only is he a celebrity figure in his own right as a star cricketer he is a symbol of the the black world and the West Indian world coming to Britain yeah, you know right. he won the leading sites in the BBC West Indies cooling program which is this depiction both for the domestic public and for the West Indian public of the West Indian war effort. But in 1943, he goes into the Imperial Hotel with his family. He's refused entry because there's a large party of Americans staying in the hotel. And the hotel manager's like, I can't let you and I don't cause any trouble. But these Americans... And he sues them for breach of contract and wins. And it's sort of a landmark case in British race relations legally because Constantine... It's what's also supposed Constantine to do his law degree. Because after the war, he becomes a lawyer. Yeah. And there's one of these things where you understand that it is that soft bar that perhaps are people using the Americans as an excuse to enforce their own prejudice? It's difficult to say. Sort of the understanding of the government position on this is that a British civil servant, black British civil servant, was kicked out of a bar by the American, a bunch of American GIs. And when he was told about it, Churchill said, give him a banjo, they'll let him in with a band. Oh, which... Mm. Well, yes, there were... <laughs> that's Churchill, that's, that's Churchill, that's Churchill all over. Yeah, exactly, that's Churchill for you. Because, because unfortunately, he's probably, he's probably right Unfo- in, in, his, in his appraisal, isn't he? Unfortunately, but it's sort of, but it is... But it's, um, you, you, know, you, you think he'd stand up for his own civil service, yeah, but... Yeah, yeah, but no, yeah. But, um, gosh, I mean, it... it the, the sort of, I mean, the tangle right there in that is that it's because it's the idea, isn't it, that you don't want to offend the you don't want to offend the guests. Well, who's the, the guest? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Who's the guest, and who should you Precise. be sticking up for? <laughs> Precisely. Yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, that sort of attitude is summed up. There's a Jamaican engineer called Baron Baker, who yeah. in '44 is being treated. You know, he Americans move into the area of his unit, and he's you know kicked out of bars in Gloucester by Americans. And he goes, he's an outspoken man. He goes to his CO, the group captain, an American commander, and he says this. We are King George VI soldiers, not Roosevelt's little black boys. We are not foreigners. We are British subjects, and this is the mother country. And you as a Yankee foreigner ain't beating us one inch from where we are. God, makes, you proud to, makes you proud to be British. <laughs> it's yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> that's the attitude they all have, which is, yeah. we're here. We were at this before you. We are here as King George's subjects fighting for him against fascism. What you think is irrelevant to me. What, how it works in your country is irrelevant. And I think there's another yeah, one... And, and spot on, frankly. There's another yeah. one here from Jack Artis, who was an army sergeant from Worcester, who said, We were there to fight the Nazis who believed in white supremacy. So God alone knows what the GIs thought they were fighting for. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. It's oh, quite wow. clear that the black British and West Indian and West Africans in Britain have very <laughs> low opinions of the GIs. Yeah. You know, they consider yeah. themselves the protectors of the black GIs because a lot of them, especially the commissioned officers or the NCOs, would have had superiority over white GIs. So they consider themselves protectors. And in, you know, the very frequent fights that broke out between black GIs and white GIs and white GIs and white British soldiers and white. GIs and white British civilians, you could tend to find the black British servicemen involved. What is always interesting is that 
if black people, whether they were black GIs or black Brits, were targeted by white GIs, the British public would all, almost always leap to their defence. And the American, li- the Anglo-American, oh, li- that's heartening to know. That is heartening mm. to know. And the Anglo, I mean, the most famous example being Bamber Bridge. Yeah, which yes, you know course, you can yeah. still go there and see the bullet holes. And part of that was the fact that the local public refused to let the white GIs bully the black civilians out of their pub, black soldiers out of their pub. But the always thing that amuses me is the liaison board's report states that the reason they think is that the British people will always back an underdog. Ah. They think whoever, if there is a fight, they will always see who is the aggressor, who is the defender, and who needs to be stuck up for. But of course, that doesn't extend to relationships, and that's a sort of thorny issue, which is that yeah. the British public, there is an attitude of fit to fight, fit to mix, which is you've come here to fight Hitler, you know, you can stay, you can drink at our bars, you can stay in our hotels, you can dance with our girls, but you can just do that. You aren't going home with her. You aren't seeing her after you finish dancing. And there's an extremely hard, well, I wouldn't say hard line, that might be the wrong word, but overly hesitant and very casually racist attitude towards mixing. And that tends to be the general attitude both within government and socially, that race mixing is considered something to be discouraged massively. And we're sort of talking about everything from just sort of rumours to, in early 42, somebody in the British government suggests spreading a rumour that VD is more common amongst black servicemen. Oh, Christ. Which... Goes down very badly with everyone involved. Basically, both the Ministry of Health and the American Lions, like, you can't just say that people have VD. <laughs> <laughs> and the American Lions board basically say, you, we're not just going to get in trouble with the black GIs here. We have allies in, who we need amongst the black community in America who will never forgive us if we do this. So, but those sort of rumours still persist amongst, and there's reports of rumours amongst the... Um, ATS and Women's Land Army that black soldiers have higher rates of venereal disease, but the idea that the government quickly dissuades itself from spreading deliberate rumours. So, so e- even though the, I mean, it's I mean, the complexity of this picture is extraordinary because if there are political considerations of the effects of racism, which there are, you know, the, the, that's exactly what you're talking about. They're worried about political blowback from bit from the effects of racism, and yet at the same time. There's very direct, you know, very direct racist policy, certainly within the within the American army, like explicitly so. It's interesting that, you know, well, we can only go so far on some things, but other things you've kind of got. I mean, for, for want of a better expression, carte blanche. I mean, I suppose that's that's exactly what the, the, the white American uh, uh, establishment has granted itself, I suppose. It's I a mean, sort of British way in that when they when they talk about accommodating the Americans, that's detached partially from accommodating Americans on race questions. So if they're going to be like, okay, in this area, we're going to let the Americans run things how they are, they wash their hands of that. And if the Americans are going to segregate in that area, that's an issue for local government. Yeah. But in questions of national segregation or issues like that brought up, the government is incredibly hesitant to enforce that because it's considered un-British. Right. It is considered un-British to enforce... This is all just... Absolutely fascinating. It really, really is. But one last thing I'd love to just ask is, is what about the role of, of black women? There is, well, the... I know, I've, I've seen, I've got loads of photographs of, of, of black service women, you know. They tend to be, that tends to be more of the domestic 
population. There are some who not many come across, so to speak, simply because of how the OBDAT works. But the significant Black British domestic population are involved heavily in the ATS and Women's Land Army. There's a famous story of Amelia King, who was mixed race, tried to join the Women's Land Army, was refused on that grounds, fights for four years for the right to be in the Women's Land Army until a farmer from Hampshire reads about her story in the paper. And, you know, it becomes letters and there's questions in Parliament about it. And in very British manner, somebody says, you know, is this about race? And the minister involved says, of course it's not about race. And the person asks the question goes, so what is it about? And the minister doesn't have an answer. And of course, within a month, she's on a farm, this farm in Hampshire with Alfred Roberts and four different villagers have offered her accommodation. So there is well, heavy involvement. And that is that also stuff. heartening. Yeah, it's but, but every time, every time you tell me something heartening, you then tell me something that's sort of you know, really, uh, sort of absolutely awful. Well, <laughs> I mean, I was—I have light notes to finish on. Don't worry, because <laughs> what is incredibly important about the experience of black servicemen, male, female, West Indian, West African, British, is that this war experience stays them for the rest of their life, and it is what leads them to do lots of great things. The Uruk Cross after the war, the trains goes to the bar is basically sets up not just the legal systems of Trinidad and the Trinidadian Air Force, but he is sort of the man you bring in in post-colonial Africa to figure out how your legal system will work. Right. And, you know, as we talked about, there's huge numbers who come across from the West Indies as part of the Windrush generation. You know, saw plenty of listeners here have read or watched or listened to Small Island, which is a fabulous novel. But you have a huge number who stay in the West Indies and build societies and... Part of that is their war experience. They all know each other and they understand each other and they've been to a place and done a thing of incredible, with incredible bravery and determination and come out of it. And that war experience sticks to them forever. And I think yeah. the signifying factor of that is that first Prime Minister of Barbados, Errol Barrow, is buried in the Barbados Military Cemetery. His grave reads, Flying Officer Errol Walton Barrow, Navigator Royal Air Force World War II and Prime Minister of Barbados. Mm. And that tells you what the war meant to people like Barrow and Cross and Smythe and all the others yeah. who I didn't get time to mention is that they fought and it mattered to them. And despite all the barriers in place, official, unofficial, and the, you know, the incredible hardship of war itself, they made it and they persisted and they made something for themselves and their communities afterwards. And I think that's the sort of story to get out of it is that they kept going, and they kept going up and further and far higher in their lives. Fascinating. Well, John, thank you so much. John, just that's been, brilliant. Been really, so really so interesting. interesting. And we'll, we're, uh, we're, well, we should we should we should speak again. You know, find us find us more, and we'll we'll, we'll have you oh, back. Don't worry, Al. I have you on Twitter. You can't escape. <laughs> 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 no one can escape. <laughs> Uh, um, well thanks everybody for listening thanks uh, to John Conker for joining us Um, let's play ourselves out with Adolf Hitler by Destroyer Adolf Hitler Adolf Hitler Are you looking at the British Empire Adolf Hitler Adolf Hitler Oh, you're looking at the British Empire. You planned an invasion. You must be taking Britain for Poland, but you'll be a failure. Britain is supported by America. 